I want to talk to you this morning about the Trinity, about our great God, and about how we start every worship service with these words, let us worship the triune God. This is the distinctive element of Christianity is what sets us apart. It's what's always set us apart. It's what's made us weird. And I mean really weird. I mean, you could say that baptism makes us weird. It does. But there are other cultures, other religions that have practiced a form of baptism. You could say the Lord's Supper makes us weird. And it does, okay? It does. Um, and I'm, I'm looking for parallels. There are certainly you have covenant meals in, in some religious traditions. But the Lord's Supper is pretty unique. But Our worship of the triune God really distinguishes us from everything else in history. It is the most important doctrine that we don't talk about. And so what I try to do, admittedly, just laying all my cards on the table, is that I try to take Trinity Sunday as an excuse to reverse that a bit and say, okay, this is really important and we don't talk about it enough, so I'm just going to blast you on Trinity Sunday with a good dose of Trinitarian theology. So let us get toward a definition then. I'm going to start with a question that I bet a lot of our children and parents know the answer to. I'm going to start with, are there more gods than one? Is there anyone who knows the answer to that question? Are there more gods than one? Hmm? No, there is only one God. In how many persons does this one God exist? Who knows the answer? Three. Good job. You guys are on point this morning. And what are they? They are the Father, say it with me, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, some, you know, yeah, either one. So we have only one God. This God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is our faith. The way we explain it is that our God is one in being, okay? One in being and three in person. There is a divine Identity, God is one in being, and there is also distinction, three in person. So I'm going to say that again. There is divine identity, one in being, and there is distinction in person, okay? three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we're going to start with that first one, that our God is one in being. Okay? Now that's kind of a weird philosophical way of talking maybe. So to help, one in being, or if you like, one in substance, or if you like, one in stuff, okay? Whatever it means to be God, there's one of those, okay? So Isaiah 43.10 is where we're going to start out. So Burley, if you could go to that next one. Yeah, Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, my servant whom I have chosen, this is the Lord speaking to his people, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. No God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Christians are monotheists, all right? Now, why am I starting there? I mean, some of you are like, duh, right? We, we know that, Brian. Because if you ever hear an objection to the Trinity, be it from Muslims or Oneness Pentecostals or Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, where the conversation often goes is... Uh, with all respect, they try to make us sound like we worship three instead of, uh, we worship three gods instead of one God, okay? And so if you get this, but the Bible says there's one God, my encouragement to you if you're in a kind of an apologetic situation and the objection is, but hey, hey, uh, you know, you Presbyterian Christian, you Protestant Christian, you Reformed Christian, the Bible says there's one God. Don't, exactly, that is exactly what you say, you just say amen, not well, but also three. You know, you'll get there in time, but to that, to hey, there's only one God, you just say amen. Absolutely, 
That is what we confess and believe. That's what God's people have always confessed and believed. Exodus 20, at the start of the Ten Commandments. I love how God starts off the Ten Commandments. I'm the one who takes care of you. That's how God starts off His law, right? I am Yahweh your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That doesn't mean before me in line, okay? That doesn't mean you can have lots of gods. I'm just the one at the front of the line. Before me means like in my presence, okay? So you come before a king, right? You're in his presence is the idea. So where is God's presence? Oh, wait, that's everywhere, right. So, okay, so we got that covered, good. So God says, you have no other gods before me, no other gods in my presence. And then basically he says, on top of that, we have, we have God as one, and the next one is, don't make an image that you think looks like me to make this happen, right? I'm, uh, uh, we know that God is spirit. He comes to us as the invisible God, and any attempt we're going to try to make of him, to, to make him in an image, even though he's already made an image, that's, that's you, human beings, in uh, any attempt we're going to make is not only going to fall short, but it's probably going to lead into idolatry. So these first two commandments stress the, the set-apartness, uniqueness of God, okay? All right, so what about this three-person business? We believe and confess, as you have already done, using the words of the Athanasian Creed, that our God is one in being and He is three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So where do we get that from? We get, first of all, that the Father is God. Maybe that's super obvious, but we're just going to clarify it to be absolutely sure. In John chapter 20, Jesus tells Mary, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. This is after his resurrection. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and to your God. Okay? So Jesus affirms that God the Father is in fact God. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes this claim for himself that is absolutely mind-blowing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was Yahweh, right? Before Abraham was, I am, okay? So this is, the, and, and they knew what that means. It's why they tried to kill him. Uh, and this, was a, this was a claim to deity. We also have, uh, these references about the Holy Spirit are scattered throughout the New Testament and the Old, by the way, um, but the Holy Spirit is also God. Uh, a text that I like to go to for this is Acts chapter 5, when you have the, the moment of Ananias and Sapphira, and uh, Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, kind of put a pin in that, lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? They had sold some land. They were going to go give the money to the apostles. And Peter says, is this everything? And Ananias said, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's everything, right? He, he lied. Uh, and Peter's basically saying, why did you lie? You didn't even need to lie. It was your money. You could have kept it. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You see it, lied to the Holy Spirit. A few seconds later, lied to God. And he doesn't flinch or blink. And nobody says, excuse me, Peter, I think you got two things confused. Okay? So there is divine identity for all three, but there's also distinction. I said this earlier. So you have one divine identity and you have distinction. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. This is a helpful little graphic I discovered on the internet. Uh, and so you see Father is God, Spirit is God, Son is God, the Hebrew there for Yahweh, same Hebrew characters that we've got on the banners here. 
But then on the, on the uh, surrounding parts, the Father is not the Spirit. Here's the distinction. Spirit is not the Son. Son is not the Father. Okay? So as far as, as, far as picture representations go, that's about as good as I think we're going to do. It's pretty darn good. All three share the identity and being of God, yet all three are distinguished from each other. Now let me get to my first question then. This is really complicated, right? In one sense, yes, God, as it turns out, is complicated. (laughs) That's good news, by the way. That means nobody made him up. We live in a generation, though, where anything that cannot be explained and grasped easily and quickly is sometimes dismissed or held in suspicion. We're the microwave generation. Our meals are ready in minutes. Our politicians communicate in tweets, God help us. Our tech gets faster and faster. And we are tempted to believe there, tempted, that anything real and worthwhile has to be simple and easy. It's a lie, okay? I was listening to a a, a theological debate, because that's the kind of nerd your pastor is. Oh, uh, and a, a theological debate between two gentlemen, and one of them kept interrupting the other because he wasn't answering quick enough for him. And at one point, the other guy just looked up and said, I do have thoughts that sometimes take more than two sentences. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's perfect. It's like, yeah, I, I think we can communicate this way. We can understand that sometimes there are thoughts that are worth more than two sentences. Sometimes, God forgive us, we even defend our laziness with this kind of claim to simplicity. Well, I don't really get into that theology stuff. I'm just a simple man with a simple life, simple mind. No, you're, you're probably just a little lazy, okay? Let me just challenge you there. You might, might just be a little lazy. Neil preached from Romans 11. Was that this past Sunday, right? Yeah. Neil preached from Romans 11 on Sunday, okay? Do I have that text in there? Wonderful. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. How beyond explanation are the ways of this God. Our God is not like microwave popcorn. Growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, will look more like farming than like a TV dinner. Okay? Right? So seasons and and harvests and dry and difficult seasons and fruitful and plentiful seasons and so on. There have been attempts to make analogies to explain the Trinity. Basically, little newsflash for you, all of them at some point or another fall into heresy. Okay? The Trinity is like an egg, you know? Uh, No, it's not. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, shell and, and yolk and white, but it's one egg, right? No, that's breaking God into three separate parts. None of them, by the way, are the same substance. Well, the Trinity's like water, you know? It can be the, the steam or the ice or the liquid, right? No, it can only be one of those at a time, not all three at once. Well, it's like the sun with the star and the light and the heat. No, the heat and the light are creations of the star. We do not believe that the Son and the Spirit are creations of the Father. Rather, they are one in nature with Him. I promise whatever analogy you have in your brain right now that you're thinking I'm going to test out, I'm I'm just going to promise you it fails because nothing in our created universe is quite like our God. Why is this important? I want to make clear that this is important because for some people when they hear about this doctrine of ours, it sounds to them like a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction. Mystery is not the same thing as irrationality. Okay? If you're writing something, write that down. Mystery does not equal 
irrationality. Mystery, the mysteries of God do make us rejoice. They do. They do. Start with Neil's sermon from last week. We've got it recorded. The mysteries of God make us rejoice. But it is hard to love that which you do not understand. Okay? Well, and all the married men are going, oh, I do that every day. Okay, fair enough. But I mean, if you feel so distant and, and difficult to understand that you can't even kind of get a basic framework. We are called to know and love God. It's one of the greatest privileges of being human. That we are called to know and love this God. In Acts 17.23, you might be familiar with this moment. Paul's walking through Athens and he tells them, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And he, he leverages that, as it were, and just says, what you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. What I want to give you from that, and this I borrow from James White, the essence of paganism is worshiping a God you do not know. And, and White basically makes the case that, that in paganism, there was a lot of, we don't really know who this God is, he, you know, he's, he's totally removed from us, totally distant from us. We, don't, we just know we don't want to make him mad. Okay? The essence of paganism is worshiping a God you do not know. Or Ezekiel, you've heard me numerous times in the book of Ezekiel read this phrase, right? We see it again and again. You shall know that I am the Lord. This is like the burning passion of Ezekiel that that they know the Lord. And in Ezekiel, it's you know what kind of a judge he is. You know what he does with rebel sinners. God is... Oh, how can I put it? God absolutely prioritizes this reality that you and I must know Him. Must know Him. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11, one of the great promises of the new covenant is that the knowledge of God is not the possession of one particular group or class. Rather, all the baptized, blood-bought children of God are brought in to know Him, know the Lord, for they shall all know Me from the least to the greatest. Theology, knowledge of God, which is different from knowing God, by the way, but theology is not the peculiar prerogative of pastors and elders. All of us are students of theology. Some of us are really bad students of theology. Others of us are pretty good students of theology. And some of us have the absolutely bizarre notion that we ought to be paid to be one. That was a joke. If you're listening on audio, I just pointed at myself. And so... Uh, Part of, part of the work together as the church has always been, how do we, you know, how do we not only fellowship together and eat together, but, but encourage one another to press on to know the Lord, to learn more? And, and that, by the way, it's why we do Wednesday night. It's why we do stuff like catechize our children. It's because we believe that pressing on to know the Lord is absolutely essential, and part of that is knowing about the Lord. And so Wednesday night is, I mean, really, it's like, it's just our excuse to get together to eat and to know more, to talk, to discuss, to learn, to challenge one another. And also, so there are basically two places where this happens most centrally, right? One of them is, is here. And then, I mean, to, to also a, a smaller extent, Wednesday night, right? Our, our, our worship service of covenant renewal, which happens on Sunday morning, are gathering together Wednesday night to, to learn and to encourage one another with fellowship uh, and, and sharing a meal together. But also family worship. 
So households being together, reading the Bible together, dare I say it, even singing together, it, what that does is it, is it normalizes the activity in a, in a good way, normalizes the activity of worship in the house. And so you're continuing to learn and grow together. We are also called, though, you know, to love God, right? That's a great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God, not just know Him. Actually, isn't it brilliant the way that Jesus put that is know Him with all your mind. Okay, well, that sounds like knowing about, yeah, but, but love, sorry, loving Him with all your mind. Did I say knowing Him? Loving Him with all your mind. So it's still, it's still an act of love. And so for most of us, the doctrine of the Trinity tends to kind of lie outside our grasp or outside our comfort because we find it hard to love an abstract concept. And so part of my goal this morning has been to bring that a little bit closer to home, and by that I mean bring it a little closer to your heart this morning. What I mean when I say it's not a contradiction is that Christians do not worship one being and three beings. That would be a contradiction. Christians do not worship one person and also three persons. That would be a contradiction. Okay? Christians worship God, who is one in being and three in person. And so there is divine identity, I'll say it again, and there is distinction. And so if I, let me see, let me check my time. You know what? We're, 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 yeah, we're going to roll with it. Um, Neil, can I pick on you for a minute? All right, could you stand up? Is this not an impressive man, ladies and gentlemen? Okay, right. So if I, this is going to sound like a weird question, but if I point at Neil and say, what is that? I know that sounds like an offensive way to put it. But who knows the question I'm asking and how to answer it? What? If I said, who, what is that? You would say, that is a, a man, right? Or a human being, right? If I said, what is that? You would say, that is a human being or that is a man. If I said, who is that? You would say, Neil, Neil Barham. Thank you. You can sit down. What you just did was distinguish between being and person. Okay? You just distinguished between being and person. I said, what is this? And you said, a human being. Who is this? And you said, Neil. Okay? So you just made, you, you already make this distinction. I don't know if, if some, of you, uh, some of you were alive. I think I just missed it. I think it was early 80s. The uh, uh, pet rocks, the, the pet rock craze. Did you have a, did you have a I, I missed that completely. God be praised. Uh, but, but you could, yeah, people got these little rocks and they drew faces on them and made them look like little dogs and things like that. The problem with a pet rock is that it doesn't have any personhood, okay? Now, it certainly has being, okay? If you have any question about it, pick up your pet rock and throw it at somebody's face and they will discover very quickly that it has being, okay? But it doesn't have person. It's not going to return your affection, it will not reassure you. It will not communicate with you. If it does, you need to call the men in white coats, right? We already know the distinction between being and person. It's not that far from us. The reason we struggle with it, just to be frank, the reason why you struggle with it is because every being you know, uh, excuse me, every person you know is also one being. Every one person you know is also one being. So that's kind of your template for it. And so this, this, uh, this doctrine of God moves us beyond that template. In 2015, R.C. Sproul was asked, what do you believe will be the most important doctrinal matter as we move forward into the 21st century? 2015. He said the doctrine of God, understanding who God is, will be vitally important. And the Reformers knew that if you get your doctrine of God wrong, everything else is going to skew funny and sometimes tragically. 
Um, what do I, you know, what, what do I think about that? I, I, think, I think he's probably right that in the long run of the 21st century, that is going to be one of the most important doctrines to understand, to confess, to know. I think doctrine of man is kind of one that's poking us in the eye right now, but that's perhaps another sermon for another time. I want you to go to John chapter 1. Preaching style is a bit different this morning, I know, but I appreciate you keeping up. John chapter 1 which I don't think I put in the presentation, did I, Burley? I'm sorry. It's at the very, very beginning, but we skipped over earlier. Remember when I prayed for patience, Burley? Yeah. Yeah, it was for me and you. Beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him. Mm. All things were made through Him. Think Word, think creation, God speaking. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. You jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Note some things that John says. Because if he was speaking, as he, as he was, to a Jewish audience, he starts out in the beginning, and, and all the little Jewish children would have immediately, you know, in the beginning, right, was God. But that's not what he says. He's in the beginning was the Word. What are we doing here? Note some things about this Word that verse 14 becomes flesh. This Word is eternal. Because it's in the beginning with God and this word was God. With God and was God. Notice, I'll say it again. There is divine identity and there is distinction. Okay? In the beginning was the word. We know this word was God, identity. With God, distinction. Now I want to talk to you briefly. We're going to get, we're going to get kind of Greek nerdy here for a second. Okay? Not something I usually do, but I think for this one it's important. So the word with, there are three or four ways to, to, to go about saying the word with in Greek. Doesn't that sound crazy, like four ways to say the word with? Are you serious? So one way is to use the word para or para, right? So parallel, that's where we get the word parallel, alongside. Uh, it would also be another fine translation of that. So that kind of, I mean, if you, if you put two things alongside each other, para is the word you would use for with. This thing with this other thing right next to it. Soon, I know it looks like sun, uh, soon or you, um, some pronunciations here would be sin as in synthesis, okay? Two things coming together or synagogue, right? Where people would come together. People would come together to be with one another. You get it, Okay. Then finally, pros, and sometimes the word meta also takes this function. But pros is the root, uh, it, it means with, it's also the root for another Greek word, prosopon, which is the Greek word for face. This is what we might call the relational with. It's the word you would use for a face-to-face -face relationship. Guess which one shows up in John 1? It's pros. Okay? So in the beginning... Not, not just an idea that God had in his head, not just a concept that God might use as like a word in a sentence, but in the beginning, this word was with God. 
When Jesus says in Matthew, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's this word. When Jesus comes to his hometown and people ask, are not your mother and brothers here with us? Don't we know them? Okay? Aren't we close with them? They're one of, they're one of us, right? That, again, same word gets used. So we have this eternal word who is with God and who is God. This is our great hope, that the eternal Son took on flesh. And in doing so, He did not leave heaven empty. He was sent by His Father with a mission to accomplish. By His blood we are saved, because all of His sacrifice is applied to us, put on us, if you like, by the Holy Spirit, by faith. He puts it on us in in baptism as well, and every time we gather together at this table, He keeps putting it on us. You see, we have eternal presence here, and we have, uh, that's the, uh, uh, with God, eternal presence, and, uh, sorry, eternal presence and, and distinction. So, with God and was God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, where's the Holy Spirit? The short answer is that he is inspiring these words through the Apostle John. John is Uh, describing, unfolding the saving work of the Son. And so if you want to know about the Holy Spirit, keep reading is the short answer. Uh, He's going to let, John is going to let Jesus do all that explaining when we get to John 14, 15, 16. But for now, what is John doing? He's only trying to hit one target, and that is provoke his readers with a sense of awe and curiosity. So like all in the beginning, God, oh yeah, I mean, I know, yes, this God is is in the beginning, created all things, and also curiosity, in the beginning was the Word. That's not what I was expecting. With God and was God. Wow. Wait, who are we talking about? This Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want to know more. Who is this Logos? Who's this enfleshed God? Then later, who is this man? Who is this preacher? When the, when the storms come crashing in on the disciples, right? And Jesus gets up and he stills the waves. And what does one of them say? Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him, right? That's because the gospel writers want you, the readers, to be asking that very question. Well, I know God, but who is this Logos? Who's this enfleshed God? Who's this prophet? Who's this preacher? John is meaning to provoke these very questions. Until we get to the end of his gospel and find Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God. That's who he is. So does the Trinity matter? Let me close with a couple of thoughts on that. One of the things the Trinity means, and one of the reasons I will continue to share it with all of you as deeply meaningful, just to start, is that the Trinity means that fellowship itself is as old as God. Okay? So hang, hang on. Just get your mental hands around that for a second. The Trinity means that fellowship itself is as old as God. Love is older than time. Doesn't that sound nice? Because God has never been alone. Father, Son, and Spirit have always been united together. If you do not have an eternal Father, an eternal Son, and an eternal Spirit, what you have rather is an eternally lonely God who is all alone until He finally gets around to creating some stuff. But we preach and confess that the God that we worship is love because He's always been loving. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been enjoying perfect union and glad fellowship way before there were trees or water or light. And when it comes time to create a being in the very image of that glorious God, He speaks and He says, Let us make man in our image. And so, salvation is Trinitarian. What I mean is, our salvation is the great work of God. Your salvation was planned, secured, and applied by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who loves you. Let me go to 1 Peter, the text in 1 Peter. This is one of the coolest things, man. Oh yeah, that's the Genesis text. Right? So Peter starts out, an apostle of Jesus to those who are elect exiles. And he names a bunch of different places, okay? People who are receiving his letter. According to, so elect, according to, the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Right? So right there. He said, you have been brought into this drama according to the foreknowledge of the Father, the Holy Spirit who set you apart and is sanctifying you, preparing you for the last day. How? Because of Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. The Father from before time planned to unite a people to Himself by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The eternal Son who took on flesh and stepped down into Bethlehem so that He could be named Jesus. Let me say that again. The eternal Son second person of the Trinity, stepped down into Bethlehem so he could be given the name Jesus. This Jesus lived, he was crucified, he was resurrected. Forty days on, Pentecost, and every day since then, the Son has been sending the Holy Spirit, filling our hearts, sanctifying us, illuminating God's very words to us in preaching so that we actually enter into this fellowship that, as I said, is older than time itself. We are part of it. Your union with Jesus means you are welcomed into this fellowship to know this God for all time until the very last day and beyond. You heard me mention earlier, this, uh, during our prayer time, this young man who committed suicide. Uh, it does look like I'll, I'll be doing or at least participating in his funeral. Um, and just speaking of funerals, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to mention to you that uh, just members of Grace, just so you know, um, I think it was a while back, Sandy, you did like an um, overview of, of kind of uh, planning the end, as it were, right? There was a, a class that you did for a while. Yeah, um, and it was kind of basically how to plan your funeral, how to make sure your will is written out. It sounds morbid, but it's a good way to take care of your family, okay, just in short. And another good way is to meet with a pastor, I don't know, maybe the guy who's going to do your funeral, and tell him what you want, right? And I promise I will keep a file in my office of any information you give me to that end, okay? Uh, and so it, it makes things a lot smoother and easier once, uh, once it's time to do that, once it's time to bid farewell, because here's the reality, like, I, this is a radical thing, right? I know you came here to hear radical things in church. Here it is, you are going to die. Right? I have this on good authority, and I believe it 110%. And then somebody's going to stand up here and say some words about you, and then they're going to go eat potato salad. Okay? So you want to make sure that the guy has something to say and doesn't have to lie. Okay? When I bury someone, I like to make use of an old Christian tradition of scattering dirt on the casket. It's symbolic of 
well, the first bit of dirt that's going on the casket, because they are burying it, obviously, but it's also a visible reminder, right? From the dirt you were made to the dirt you will return. And then as I close with, uh, with a benediction and a blessing, with arm outstretched, and you can still see the mud on my fingers, and you realize that's where we're headed. But then, after I scatter the dirt, if it's a Christian burial, I pray this prayer. Listen. May God the Father who created this body, may God the Son who by His blood redeemed this body, may God the Holy Spirit who sanctified this body by words and sacraments keep these remains until the day of resurrection when they will rise up out of this grave with a renewed and glorious prerogative to never, ever die again. And so, dear saints... Press on to know the Lord. Press on to know the Lord. As long as we have breath, let us worship our triune God. In the name of Jesus, amen.